The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob Imrani. Accident or injury, call Jacob Imrani, call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Kalinsky. Sue, it is early on a Friday, and I don't do my best work early, but uh, I'm excited about today because Andrew McCarthy is going to be on the show. You know what I do? I I chug two cups of coffee. I put some ice cubes in them, and then I chug them. That's how I get ready for a show when we're doing it really early in the morning. Do you ever have anything? By the way, really early means 9.35 to me. (laughs) Uh, Do you ever have a a ritual to help you get awake and to get going? Well, I don't chug anything, (laughs) but I do sip a nice hot cup of coffee. But I I drink decaf. Oh, come on. Well, what's the point of that? I mean, I need that. Bam, bam, bam. I, I don't like the way caffeine makes me feel. It makes me very, um, I don't know, like edgy. Yeah, see, I, I live on edgy. Yeah, I'm, I'm like basically I in the morning, I get cranked up on caffeine. Uh, then in the afternoon, I drink coffee while I'm doing the show. Then afterwards, I hit the brakes and I hit a gummy. So it's like my life is like. You know, Whoa. it's like chasing one high after another. So you eat a, when do you eat a gummy? Usually about six o'clock at night. And, and it's, uh, and it's sativa. I mean, no, you want it's, energy. A, it's, it's an a, indica. It's an indica. It's like, okay. let's, let's wind down. You oh, chugged okay. 11 cups of coffee today. Let's do something a little bit different and hit the brakes and slow things down. So now you, 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 you know, you said that you, you drink iced coffee. What is the difference? Is it is it that you need that extra charge, like that extra jolt with something really cold? No, it's that you can chug it if it's not hot. Ah, I so see. So if if it's not hot, you chug. Like I'll go to the office today, mm-hmm. and I'll get a quad espresso from Starbucks, and I'll get a couple of ice cubes in it, so I can just go glunk, and it's gone. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, just, I don't. Bam, bam, bam. Uh, you know, if if you know, I don't I don't really have much much of the helper in the morning because I like I said I don't really like caffeine, and I'm not gonna like you know take a hit of sativa. Oh so. no, definitely not. Definitely, mm-hmm. I ne- never awake and bake on a on a school day. <laughs> um. So so before we get to Andrew, you had you had something you wanted to get to. Okay. So yesterday I get a new credit card in the mail. Actually, um, uh. And not a new card, but an updated card, right? Okay. And it's weird because my old card uh, didn't expire until 2026. Okay. So don't really know why I'm getting a replacement card. So I call up and uh, I'm directed to the fraud department. Okay. Like, like oh. this may not be a real card. No, uh, well, yeah, maybe, but I, I, I didn't think that. I was just thinking, was there fraudulent activity on my account? Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't get any notice from anybody. I just got this new card. Right. So the person I talked to, um, 
really didn't know what uh, was going on. And, and she was giving me really like, I wouldn't say she was giving me misinformation. She just wasn't giving me information about what was happening. And I said, hey, I just. Was, it's you. called just a legit sneeze right there. So anyway, the customer service person doesn't know what they're doing. Doesn't really know. Doesn't really, you know, uh, can't really handle the job. Mm-hmm. So because um, she, she kept on saying to me, well, your prior card and your new card. And I said, let's, let's take the new card out of the equation because I just got the card and called you. So right, I haven't right. used the new card. So there cannot be any charges on the new card. Yes. So she couldn't figure it out. So she, uh, directs me to, uh, connects me to somebody else. And so the woman, uh, supervisor said yes. to me, Okay. Uh, I said, was there any fraudulent activity? And she said, well, we saw something suspect. There was a charge for like, I don't know, it was like 40 bucks. Um, and she didn't immediately tell me what it was. And I said, um, I think I may know what that is. Yeah. Um, she said, well, we flagged it that there was something that did not look right. So, and then she said there was another charge for $600. So then she tells me the, the $40 charge was for uh, DoorDash, which I never use. Oh. And then there was a $600 charge for an Apple purchase that I didn't do. Ah, so this is fraud. And I said, well, how did you know about this? She said, your card was on the deep web. Oh, no. Yes. Oh, that's terrible. And I said, oh, my God. I said, well, like, how do you even? She said, I, I can't even, you know, explain to you how we found it out because I've had fraudulent charges on credit cards. I've had I've had I've been hacked before in my checking account. Um, and I said, wow, that is just crazy. So um, she said, don't worry about it. You know, it, it, it never made it to your card. Like we immediately saw it. We flagged it. And the charges never went through. Wow. That's kind of scary. Yeah, it is. It is scary. So, like, given that information, um, I still don't get, like, extra protection for things. You know, like, you can get software, you know. Yeah, you're talking about, like, security stuff. Malware and stuff like that. McAfee, all that business, yeah. Because I I always think that I'm going to install something. And that is going to be worse yes, or they're yes. going to be able to get into my computer another way. Yeah. Right. Um, so are you that kind of guy? Like, like when you take a trip, like yeah. I'm talking about just extra protection all around. Like when okay. you take a trip, do you take out the insurance in case you have to cancel your trip or do you just, just whatever happens? Just let her rip if the trip works. Like, for example, we're supposed to be going to Vegas this weekend. It's not even booked yet. Like mm-hmm. we're supposed to be gone because it's like a last minute. Let's see what deals we can get, that kind of thing. So uh, no trip, prote- but I've never taken the trip protection. Like, for example, when you go rent a car, they give you the option to get this extra insurance. And the reality is your insurance would wind up covering whatever it is that happens. Uh, so I never get the insurance there either. Well, your your insurance will cover it. And a lot of times certain credit cards cover it also. Right, right. So this layer, the dark web, though, is scary. Like, who? I I know Al Gore invented the real web. Who invented the dark (laughs) web? 
Mm. That's what I want to know. Elon Musk. (laughs) Yeah, Elon Musk. No, but I mean, there's like all kinds of weird shit going on in there. Uh, You know, people are buying illegal stuff and, you know, exporting wild animals and buying heroin and all kinds of crazy stuff on the dark web. So I've never been there. I I don't, nobody ever gave me the uh, directions. I could put it in my GPS and maybe I could get to the dark web, but I have no idea where it is or how to get there. Well, it's kind of like what, you know, one of the newer things that's been going on is um, I'll go online or it, it it pops up sometimes on Instagram, mostly on Instagram. There'll be uh, an ad to buy um, like all birds shoes that I yeah, really right. like. Okay? I get that ad a lot. Yeah. And it's they had one recently that was through. Um, Bed Bath and Beyond, which is so bizarre because they never they never sell shoes, and, they, but, and they're out of business. And they're out of business. But it was it was like one of the one of the stores that hadn't closed yet or something, okay, and they were it. getting rid of everything. And they were um, offering all bird shoes for nineteen ninety nine. No, it's good price. Yeah, yeah, good price. But you know, it's complete <laughs> bullshit. Um, so I I actually saw something recently and I always call my brother because he's, you know, computer genius and he just yeah. he knows everything. So um I called him up about something I wanted to buy and I said, legit, not legit, you know, it should be a game show. And uh and he said, No, 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 don't don't do it. It's don't total do it. total crap. So they're they're getting to you, you know. No, yeah, they're, they're getting to you in your in, in the wheelhouse of people who want a bargain. Yeah, you know? right, right. But, it, well, but if well, it's too good to be true, it's it's definitely it. It crap. always is. It always is. Well, I, if you want uh, to reach Sue, she's available on the dark <laughs> web. Would you like to give the credit card number so they can find you, your address, anything like that? I can give them the old number. The old number. There you well, go. It was funny because the woman said to me, uh, you know, when we were ending the call, she said, OK, so, um, you know, you can tear up that card, you know, rip up that card. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's canceled. And then I said to her, see ya suckers. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, all right. Well, let's do this. Our guest today was in so many of the movies that I grew up on pretty in pink and less than zero and mannequin and class and St. Elmo's fire. He's gone on to become a successful director on shows like blacklist, Gossip Girl, and Orange is the New Black. And as an author, he's written three books. He's here to talk about his latest, Walking with Sam, A Father, A Son, and 500 Miles Across Spain. Andrew McCarthy joins us. Andrew, thanks a lot for doing this, man. Really appreciate it. Oh, pleasure. Good to be with you. So the book is really great. Absolutely loved it. And I want to get into this journey that you went on with your son, Sam. I should mention Sam has been a guest on this show when he was doing Dead to Me. Uh, so now we get uh, we get the dad portion of of this Equal conversation. Time, yeah. <laughs> so I got to tell you, we are you and I are about the same age. Uh, I grew up on your movies. I thought you guys, meaning the Brat Pack, were like the coolest guys in the world. I recognized my life in Saint Elmo's Fire, where I was in life. Those characters were, and I still love that movie. Uh, so all of your work had an impact on me. I would imagine you get that a lot. I do, <laughs> but you know, it's a beautiful thing. It's come to it's come to be a beautiful thing for me over you know over the years. It wasn't always that way. I mean, I hated the term Brad Pack when it started when it was coined, as did everyone else who was uh, labeled with that 
moniker. But, you know, over the century since then, I've kind of come 180 degrees on it of, you know, embracing it because I am exactly what you just said. I'm like, and the other members are like an avatar for your youth. You look at me and you think of your, that own wondrous time in your own life because there's no more exciting time in life than that. When you're like 2021, 20, the world's just yours. Your life's a blank slate to be written upon. And, you know, it's get out of the way world. Here I come. And, you know, that's an amazing feeling. So when people come up and talk to me and see me, they're really talking to themselves in their own youth. And they have great, you know, consequently, they bestow a lot of affection on me. You know, uh, with all the movies that you made during that time, um, you know, your life just, you know, you blew up like like all the actors and you found yourself in places like I started reading your your memoir and your memoir is just incredible. But I there was one thing that I read about how you went to a party at Sammy Davis Jr.'s house when you were young. And I always marvel, and this is the thing about show business, how people end up, they always end up at places that it's like, how did they end up there? Or how does somebody become friends with somebody? Like, I remember reading that Mick Jagger was friends with Angela Lansbury. <laughs> like, how did, how did well, that happen? Like. They kind of look alike. So, it's, you know. <laughs> so, so what was that like? What was the situation? How'd you get there? Well, it was even better than a party. It was not a party at Sammy's house. It was, um, I was, I was doing St. Almost Fire and Rob Lowe invited me out to dinner with him and his girlfriend, which was odd in itself because Rob had never invited me out for dinner. And I was like, sure, I'd love to. So we went to, uh, Spago, which at the time was the spot, you know, on the Sunset Strip there. And I'd never been there before. And I sat down and the, the fourth at dinner was, uh, this woman who I hadn't ever met before. And they said, Andrew, this is Liza. And I'm like, Hi, Liza. Hi, Andrew. And so, you know, I ordered a double vodka instantly and Liza finally turned out to be a fantastic, you know, dinner companion. And then as the dinner was winding down, she, she said, Hey, let's, uh, let's go to Sammy's. And I thought Sammy's was a club. And I was like, and I didn't want to feel like I didn't know anything. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'd love to go to Sammy's. I love Sammy's. Love to. And so she goes, let me make a call. You know, this is before cell phones, of course. And so yeah. anyway, she went away. Yeah, Sam, they're expecting us at Sammy's. I'm like, fantastic. We don't have to wait in line. And anyway, so we went driving up into the hills, and I'm like, and we pull into some driveway, some gate, and I'm like, this ain't a club. Anyway, the door swings open, and there's Sammy Davis Jr., and he's like, Max, come on in, you know, and then we were hanging with Sammy, and it was just absolutely fantastic, and he couldn't have been nicer, and it was this strange, weird, surreal evening of me and Rob and couple other people in Liza just hanging with Sammy, you know, oh. and it was, it was really weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. He was long sober, but you know, he got, he was played bartender. Me and him were, you know, smoking cigarettes and he's like, I got my eye on you young cats. And I'm like, okay, Sammy. <laughs> but it was truly one of those nights that only happens when you're having, and we were right in the midst of having that sort of that moment happen. And those kind of crazy, ridiculous things happen when you're in the midst of, that moment, you know, culturally. And things like that didn't happen to me after that. But when you're in the throes of that kind of moment, and there's that, that moment happens for every generation, and it happened to us at that time, you know. And there are certain people that it happens to, and I was, you know, lucky enough to be there for, and to have one of those moments. And yeah, yeah. When I was so young, I didn't really take it in. I mean, I, I was kind of terrified of it at the same time. But the night with Sammy was truly one where you kind of went, this is crazy. I'm a long way from New Jersey here. Yeah, right. So I'm I'm hoping you'll tell us 
where you were in life the first time you decided to walk the Camino de Santiago? What was what was going on in your world? Because you did this when you were younger. Describe where your head was and where your heart was at that time. Yeah, I, I walked it um, in the early, mid-90s. So it was after I sort of had my blush with all what we were just talking about. And I was sort of, I think I was tumbled in the in the dryer you know in, in the backwash of all that without even really knowing it and i think i was looking for something in my life again without knowing it and i with that moment of youthful insanity and success was waning you know and so i was i didn't know what i was looking for but i read that i picked up a book in a bookstore by accident really and it was about this guy who walked 500 miles across spain on this old pilgrimage route and i mean that had no interest to me at all i couldn't have cared less but i kept sort of glancing at it and then suddenly i was halfway through with the book and i said i'm doing that and, and so i did i went and walked across spain on this on the camino de santiago and, and it was awful i hated it every day it was worse than the day before and then uh i did have one of those cathartic moments that people often talk about where uh a lot of things came clear to me you know I was in a, I was in a field of wheat, actually, you know, I was in the Camino about halfway through there's, um, there's the high meseta it's called, and there's days and days of just wheat fields. And I was walking through with this wheat field alone on like the third day of just wheat to the horizon. <laughs> and it was miserable and it's sunny and it's like beating down and I'm sweating. I'm like going, what am I doing? What, what, what is the point of this? And I was on my knees and I was sobbing suddenly. And it really dawned on me in that instant that how much I'd been afraid in my life, how much fear had dominated my whole experience, which seemed odd considering that I was a very public person and out in this world in this way. But it really was an amazing moment of clarity to kind of feel. And the minute I became aware of it, it lifted, you know, for that instant anyway, fear is a cunning thing. You don't just identify and it goes away. But once you identify something like that, it can never have the hold it had over you. You know, and that changed my life, really. Except then my first half of my life had been about reacting to fear. And the second half of my life after that has been about walking away from fear, you know? So it was a big, uh, big deal for me. It was a big deal. And so I'd always wanted to walk it again. Hmm. You know, I wanted, what I want to say about what I, why this book was such a great read for me was how you beautifully like weaved your journey, um, with introspection and, and vulnerability. And it's kind of like wrapped up in, in like a, in your past and present. Like it's, it's like a personal historical travel book, you know, it has everything in it and the vulnerability. And especially because you took this trip with your son and, um, all of the things that you, you learned with him. Um, did, did he know that you were going to write a book about your, your journey when you, well, when you, in my, my other life, I'm a travel writer. So that means I don't really go anywhere without thinking I might write about it. So I was taking notes, you know, kind of vague little notes along the way, just kind of, um, and thinking I might write about this at some point in some way, not with my son, but just about the Camino and, and the Camino, you walk for 500 miles and you get to Santiago de Compostela and that's where the pilgrimage ends. And, it's about 50 miles from the ocean. So, but a lot of pilgrims feel the urge to continue on to the sea beyond to a place called Finisterre, the end of land. And I did not feel that urge. I was happy if I said, if I make it to Santiago, I am sitting 
sitting my ass down. And but my son, at a, when he learned that a lot of pilgrims go on to this place, Finisterre, he said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk to Finisterre to the sea. You want to do it with me?" And I'm like, "No, God bless you." But and so in that instant, though, really, I realized, "Oh wait, I have a book here." Because the whole notion, the Camino is full of nothing if not cheap and easy metaphor, and the low hanging fruit of the idea of my son going beyond my accomplishments, right? That's hardwired into every parent that our children go beyond us, succeed beyond us, you know, the first one to go to college or the first one to go to medical school or whatever, you know? And so the idea that he was going to go beyond me in this walk, really, um, that was too easy to resist. And so I thought about that for a few days. And then I said to Sam, I said, you know, I think I might write a book about our walk here. What do you think of that? And he said, do I have to write anything? I'm like, no, because then I don't care. <laughs> so, so why was it important to walk the Camino de Santiago with your son? What made that the right thing to do, the thing that moved you, and, and the thing that you sort of came time for? Well, like I said, I'd always wanted to do it again after that first experience because it was such a life-changing thing. And my son was sort of, he was... 19 years old and he was when I left home at 17 my relationship with my father in essence ended and I didn't have a relationship I saw him probably a dozen times for the rest of his life and that I'd say is one of the you know and I, I reconciled with him when he was dying which is I'm glad grateful I did but that's one of the regrets of my life is that I had no relationship with my dad I think that was a real loss for both of us and but given who we were, I don't think it could have been other. But anyway, uh, I did not want that to happen with my kids. I, I just thought if my kids want to have a relationship with me through their adult life, then my life will have been a success. I think I even say that in the book, you know, and, and it's true. And so my son was just starting to leave the way 19 years, you know, he's not going to listen to me anymore, parenting him hard. And he had a girlfriend. And one day my wife turned to me and, and suddenly Sam was just sort of gone. And she just turned to me because is that Sam gone already? And I realized, and I didn't know, oh my God, it's, it's already happened. I, what I didn't want to have with Moon, it's already happened. He's gone. And then as luck would have it, his girlfriend and him broke up. And <laughs> so he was moping around the house and I pounced on him. And I said, Sammy, you want to walk the Camino with me? And he was like, because he was, you know, moping and heartbroken. He was like, sure, whatever. And at that moment, I literally walked into the other room. I, I got my computer out. I bought two tickets to Spain. And two days later, we were walking. Because I knew he'd change his mind, you know, yeah. but I just wanted something to kind of rewrite the dynamic of our relationship in the sense that, you know, the parent child thing wasn't appropriate anymore. And I didn't have any template for how that one has an adult relationship with your child. So I thought, and I knew the Camino sort of reveals yourself to yourself, reveals you to yourself. And I knew that because of my own experience. And I thought, he would benefit from that, and I certainly wouldn't hurt me another time. So that's really why we went, and um, and it did all that. It did all that. You know, when we came back, I mean, I have to say, on day two, Sam says to me, Dad, what's the point of this fucking walk? You know, <laughs> and um, when we finished on the last day, he did say, Dad, it's only 10 out of 10 thing I've ever done in my life. So, uh, and, you know, when, when uh, like two weeks ago, he called me up on the phone I mean, he still lives with us. We can't get rid of him. But um, he <laughs> called me up on the phone and he said, hey, dad, you got seven minutes? I'm like, go. And he just wanted to bounce something off me, you know, and just talk something through and stuff. So that that call, I don't think would have happened if we hadn't gone to Spain, you know. And so that, that I kind of went, oh, yeah, that was time well spent. 
Yeah, that's talking, also I have to realize just to interrupt you. I, I I didn't I had the ultimate luxury you have with an adult child, which was time. I didn't need to solve any problems, I didn't need to fix things, I didn't need to be wise, I didn't need to do anything. I just had to walk beside it. You know? Yeah, I was actually gonna ask you about that. you know, obviously when you get to the end of the book, you see that there definitely was a, a turn in him um, that he, um, you could tell that it had such a, a powerful effect on him. Um, but I, you know, there, there's, there seemed to be some criticism from people who do the walk because, you know, I know some, some Dutch guy came over to you because you were staying in a place that had showers and, and he kind of accused you of not being a real pilgrim. And, um, and basically <laughs> what, what you hear, uh, from people that have done it, people that I know, it's like you do the, you do your own Camino. And in the beginning, when Sam seemed to be kind of reluctant to things, how hard was it? to just allow him to do his own Camino and not interfere with what you, what, with what your experience had been? Well, that's a really good question. It, that was the whole challenge of the entire thing, really, because again, I, like I said before, the Camino is nothing if not metaphor in motion, you know, and just let him live his own life. It's not yours to God. You know, I still have a nine-year-old. I, I still have the luxury. I can make him happy. At, at any moment, you know, I can just do something or give him something and I make him happy. That's not the case with an adult child, you know. And so to just let him live, have his own experience was a big thing for me to realize that just hands off here, Andrew. Just you're with him. You're not manipulating or curating his experience of life anymore. And to where do you fit in that life then? And how does he fit in your life then? So that's what the whole trip was really about. That's well. Well, last, because that's really what the trip, that was the note, that was it. And it took me a while to just kind of go, my, what I came to, what I kept coming back to is just don't do anything. Just walk. Just be with him. Don't do anything. And I didn't know that would be the answer beforehand, you know, but I was just like, just be there. And my son's funny, you know, you sit him down to chat, you don't get very far, but you get him moving. Eventually it all comes out. So, I mean, every morning I would start walking and I, I would just go, don't say anything. Don't speak and whether it was five minutes or an hour and a half suddenly suddenly out of nowhere you go and then and off he'd go and you know and so um you know it was about and you know learning to trust that it, there was something there underneath beside the parenting and the me telling you how it should be and giving you wisdom and what is there anything there if you pull take all that away you know, and you have to trust that maybe there's nothing here. And okay, well, what can fill that space? Because hopefully there's still love existing. And what, what would love fill up then if it's not that dynamic and let that dynamic change? That's what the whole thing was about, you know? And so that required not knowing. And not knowing can often be uncomfortable. But uh, to, to, to continue ranting, what we had always was the walking. You just always go back to the walking. Like in life, you do that. And you go, okay, well, what do I have to hold on to now if I'm going to let that go? But in doing the... Camino, or you could always go back to the walking. And in physicality, it's particularly extreme kind of physicality like this, where you're walking over a long period, that wears you down, wears down the defenses and, you know, grounds you in yourself. And so if, so that was, and I did know that. I knew the Camino will just take care of it because it took care of me the first time. Just keep him walking. Don't let him get on a plane. You know? Yeah, right. Well, well, one thing I wanted to say was that um, there was a point in your journey where he got some attention from a woman and it seemed like it changed his attitude a little bit. 
about the Camino and, and he said to you, I'm glad I'm doing this. And I think it was the first time he actually, um, expressed that. And then he said, I wouldn't call it fun. Like he wouldn't, he wouldn't completely give it to you. I'm he said, I wouldn't have fun, but it's satisfying. And I thought that, okay, it was, he was starting to crack a little bit, but I love that it happened after he got this kind of attention as a teenager. He got attention from a woman. Well, I don't think you have to be a teenager to respond to that. <laughs> uh, but it does make one feel, you know, okay. Yeah, maybe there's more to this than I thought. Yeah, sure. So one, I didn't know the Camino is like a big hookup thing. I had no idea. I'm so it's like Tinder out there. Yeah, it's like a walking <laughs> Tinder out there. So I had no idea of this until we kind of realized, wait, these people are all hooking up. What the hell's going on here? <laughs> so at one point in the book, Sam accuses you of being too sentimental. Uh, yeah. you, you describe it as emotionally available. My partner says all the time, I'm overly sentimental. And I would say the same thing. I'm emotionally available. Is there a fine line between sentimentally, uh, uh, sentimentality and being emotionally available? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I don't even think it's that fine a line. <laughs> I just think indulging in sort of a emotion for emotion's sake and, you know, reaching for emotion, whether it's acting in acting or in life is indulgent in a way that's very unattractive. You know, but lately Sam has said to me, instead of saying I'm, I'm sentimental, he's told me that I talk down to people. Because dad, you ever notice you kind of talk down to people? <laughs> and I'm like, no. <laughs> Kids are always like to come right at you with it. You know, they're never going to let you get away with it. Because I discovered this when I was listening to the audio book. Because Sam didn't read the book. Um, he listened to the audio book, which he did with me. He did the audio book with me. So he just read his dialogue in it though. And so he hadn't, read or listened to the book and he listened to the book and he goes, dad, you know, I think you talk down to people. <laughs> Go to hell, Sam. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, I love the brutal honesty. Well, there was a, uh, another moment where you, you said to him, young people change the world. Old guys like me are too comfortable or trying too hard to hold onto what we have. Kids really shouldn't listen to grownups. And he said, don't worry. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I left myself wide open to that one, didn't I? That was a fat one over the plate, huh? <laughs> yeah, right. It really was. It, it one right over the middle. Um, but I, th but I also think that's true. I just don't think you know. And, and they don't, and they shouldn't. And like, it's all well, that's true. Young people do change the world. Young people protests lead to changing the world. And young young people, like, if I'd listened to anybody when I wanted to be an actor at the beginning, I would never. My father said, you know, no son of mine is going to be an effing thespian. You know, I wouldn't have been. I wouldn't have been active if I listened to anyone. And that was what I was, you know, that's what I wanted to do. So I love the camaraderie among the walkers, which you, you get into this sort of searching, this meditative walk. It, it seems like it's a 500 mile meditation. And at 19, I'm sure that can be uncomfortable. Uh, what did you want, Sam, more than anything to get out of this 500 mile walk? Well, sounds pretty emotionally courageous in a way that I admire. So um, I wanted him to have an experience of completion, you know, for, for one thing. I wanted us to have whatever was going to happen to our relationship, but I wanted him to know that, like, because I, I, I experienced when I was young, I never really finished anything. I had difficulty finishing a newspaper article. I couldn't finish anything, and I'd begun to notice him kind of flitter off near the end of things. And it took me a long time to to 
become a finisher, you know, and, and how important that is. And so I just thought there was something about you can, and Sam had a very difficult time in school. And so he was like I did, but he had a worse time than I did. And I think schools, if you don't fit in school, school gives you a terrible message. You know, it just gives you a terrible message that you're not smart and there's no place for you in the world. And it's just all BS. But if you fit the school mold, that's great. If you don't, you discarded and judged and, you know, you're the problem. And there's something about walking like that that can't be taken away. And it's yours. And it's the physical and the spiritual, emotional of it are, you know, you cannot take that away or dismiss it. You did that. And there was something about that that I wanted him to, like, see that through. That is, you know, and I've seen it since then in, in a sort of stability in his character that is sort of, he's more sort of of himself, you know? And I think yeah. that's, a, that's a big deal. You know, I saw the movie The Way. Um, I didn't see it when it first came out. They re-released it not that long ago. Yeah, it's a lovely movie. Oh, God, it's a lovely movie. And I was really glad that I got to see it before we spoke, because originally we were supposed to speak to you before. And then the movie came out, and I was like, oh, my God. And after reading, you know, and I had read your book already, and it really gave me so much more of a sense of 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 being there. I mean, your words and and how you beautifully expressed you know, the, the vividness in your writing. Um, I, I did feel like, oh, I was being, I was there, but when you, I actually saw it. So did you see that movie in 2010? I saw it when it came out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Emilio Estevez directed that movie. Yes. Um, yeah, it was a terrific movie. I, I loved it. And, uh, I hadn't talked to Emilio in a long, long time before that. And I contacted him after I said, I walked the Camino dude years ago and your movie really captured it. You know, what was interesting about that movie too is, it's just so, it brought back so much to me. And yet it was, of course, it's a movie, but it, but everyone's Camino is so different from everyone else's. You know, it's one of the things, it's like one's journey of life. It is, you're walking side by side with somebody and yet it's utterly different. And, you know, Sam's Camino was so different from mine. And even though we we're walking next to each other the whole way, you know, because so much of it is internal. So watching the movie, it was it was also kind of I was discovering it. I didn't feel like I'd seen it before. You know what I mean? Because it was somebody else's Camino. They were walking, and I was in with them walking it. But it's a, a lovely movie. It captures something. It captures a quality that the Camino has. It's great. And you know what I and I, I've traveled quite extensively, and and for me. You know, travel. You know, it gets to be very, very intimate because you you always meet people um, who are in some ways like minded because they're traveling as well. And you're in situations like the Camino. I mean, it is such a life changing experience that you're pretty much sharing with with people. And it it's always remarkable to me how I will have such intimate uh, experiences with these people and then never ever talk to them again. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about travel. Travel elicits, again, our sense of wonder and innocence and awe and all those kind of wonderful childlike qualities that it just opens us up again. And, you know, that's why so many people say they're their best versions of themselves when on the road. You know, I, I discovered that, too. The farther from home I got, the more at home in myself I felt. Hmm. Often travel really does that. And the Camino particularly because... Everyone seems to be walking the Camino for some kind of reason, whether they know it or admit to it. And so there's a certain, and it all has an internal reason. You know, people can be walking for their dedicated to their spouse who died, which is several people or, you know, or things like that. But it's for themselves. They're walking to process something. And if everyone's doing that, 
and all the defensiveness of society fall away. And because all you're doing is walking, eating, and sleeping, and you're doing it with other people doing the same, there's an immediate intimacy and availability and accessibility that happens on the Camino that I don't find happens other places. Certainly in travel, it's more, it's more likely to happen quicker. But in the Camino, it seems to be the mode of operandi where you're, when you sit down, how are you? They tell yeah. you. Yeah. They don't, you don't say, yeah, I'm good, I'm good. No, how are you? So you are now a uh, successful author, a travel writer, a television director. When you look back now on the the Brat Pack era, as it's come to be called, how do you view it? Was it fun? Was it overwhelming? What do you think of those intense years of 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 movie star kind of life? Awesome, <laughs> in a word. Um, you know, awesome in the way. I think it was overwhelming to me. I was not, you know, I wasn't a Kennedy. I wasn't bred for success in that way. So I found it confusing and ill-equipped. I felt, you know, the problem for me with it was, I think, and one of the things about the Camino I wanted to do is, uh, I, I felt unseen. The minute the Brat Pack label came out, we felt unseen because before that we were seen as like, oh my God, and we were getting all this attention. People were beams on it. We were being seen, you know. And it was wondrous and exciting and kind of a little scary and full of a little trepidation, but I'm getting to do what I want and it's thrilling. Suddenly the Brat Pack label comes out and we were labeled. And at the beginning, it was a very pejorative term. I mean, who wants to be called a brat? Who wants to be lumped in a pack? And this article from which it was born in, in New York Magazine article, was scathing. One of the interesting things, I think, is given our culture now with all the different medias and things and access it was one magazine article for one week in a regional magazine and the brat pack label stuck 35 years later wow. you know and in days people were using the term brat pack because there was at that time a very unified youth culture every monday morning kids came in talking about did you see x movie friday night and next weekend it was the same thing did you see x movie did you see pretty in pink did you see breakfast club did you see saint almost fire and nowadays there's so much different things going on that just wouldn't happen there is no unified youth culture the way there was then. So, but when the Brown Pack label was leveled at us, we I felt suddenly unseen. I felt like, well, wait a minute. That's not who I am. Sorry. Uh, that's not who I am. That's not who these other people are. I don't even know these guys. They're, I'm friendly with them, but we don't hang out. We don't, you know. And so it was... So that's why, you know, in walking, the, to bring it back to community for a second, I, I wanted my son to, I wanted to see who my son was. Like, who are you? Which I think what we all want so much in life is see me, see me, hear me and see me. And we all want that. And so with the Brad Pack, when that happened, I felt suddenly unseen, you know, in a way that, and labeled and, you know, dismissed as it were. Um, and so, but then it again, took me years with what we started with it to come to realize no, it's a beautiful thing. You know, I'm an avatar of your youth, you know, and I, I represent that innocence and opportunity and open playing field that life presents at that age. And so, you know, but it, it didn't always feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I read that you're doing a documentary about the Brad Pack. Mm, yeah. Because, you know, when I did that, I did that book a couple of years ago, you alluded to before and and all the things I've just been saying, how it made me, I, I really looked at it. I go, well, what was that? Because it was something I ran from for so long. And so why I sat down to write that book. And I just wrote that book on my own. I didn't tell anyone I was writing it. I wasn't planning. I didn't sell a book and then go write it. I wrote it because I'm like, what, what happened there? And so I, then I wrote it. And then I said, oh, okay, this is interesting. And that, that journey of hating 
and feeling maligned to embracing was that that's an interesting journey, I thought. And it took me a long time. But, um, and so I thought, well, then what I know everyone else experienced a similar feeling of a two by four up the head when it happened. But then I've never talked to anybody about it in all those years. And I know they've never talked to anybody because one of the ironies is the minute the Brad Pack label happened, everybody scattered. Hmm. Nobody wanted to be in a movie ensemble movie anymore. Nobody wanted to be seen in a movie together anymore because we did, we wanted to escape this stigma. And so the minute it was born, it ended it. And so, and I've been asked, you know, dozens of times over the centuries to be do people want to make a Brad Pack documentary. And my answer is always before you even finish the sentence. Nope, not interested hmm. because no one from the outside knows what it felt like on the, like that, that same ball our lives. But, you know, from the outside, it looks one way and the inside of his experience very differently. And so the only one that could have made this movie is someone who was in it because like I'd called people, I went to talk to Amelia and I said, Amelia, why are you talking to me? You always say no to everybody. It's because you called me and mm-hmm. you know, we see each other. We haven't seen, we don't know each other, but we haven't seen each other in 35 years. And if I'd met some other actor, some random actor that I did a movie with 30 years ago, I'd say, Hey, good to see you. Oh, yeah, that was a fun time. And that'd be the end of it. Yeah. With Emilio, with me, with Rob, with Ali, you know, I just look at them and I just go, hello. Yeah. And we know. Mm, yeah. You know, and yeah. there's that intimacy and that, that will always be there. You know, like Ali pointed that out. Ali just said, I, Andrew, I just look at you. I haven't talked to you in a quarter century and I just look at you and I'm like, there you are. Huh. And you know, oh, that's nice. You, no, I just got to chill. That's so sweet. You see me and I see you and we know what that's been like to carry that. And so that was just a wonderful, I was shocked how much affection we all had for each other. You know, I mean, Rob and I had each other and Rob and I were not close when we were young. We were very competitive. You know, we, we, we did two movies together. He was the first actor I ever met in Hollywood and in a movie called Class. And, you know, he was a young, gorgeous L.A. movie star. And I was like wanting to be a serious New York actor. Kind of, You know, we didn't get along. We didn't not get along. We just, we're different guys. But when we saw each other again after all these years, it was just like we embraced and then we just don't walk back and looked at each other and then we just hugged again it was just like oh my god it's you and he's been seeing you the same way that you project onto me i saw my own youth when i see rob you know what i mean yeah and then there was so much affection for my own youth in a way that i i never had before so it's quite you know lovely a surprising experience to do all that so just finishing touches on that yeah nice nice so i wanted to uh you mentioned the movie class you know i believe in synchronicity um, I think sometimes things happen in a particular way for a particular reason. This is very weird. We do this show a few days a week. And yesterday, our guest was uh, Jacqueline Bissett. No uh, way! Who was, who was your <laughs> co-star in, in class. And I love Jackie. we got to talk to her about, uh, about the movie and about making it. And she wanted to send her, uh, her warmest regards to you. Yeah, I love Jackie. You know, when we, we were doing that movie, um, she said, as we were finishing, she says, Andrew, what are you doing after the film? And it was my first movie. <laughs> and I'd gotten a movie by going to an open call. It was crazy. You know, it's like I won the lottery. And uh, and I, I said, I don't know, Jack. I have to go out to Los Angeles and get an agent. I don't have an agent. And she said, where are you staying? I said, I don't know. She goes, you'll stay with me. It's like, 
Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I lived at Jacqueline Bissett's house for like, I don't know, six weeks or something. And she used to drive me to my meetings and my auditions and when she was free. And it was just this crazy, wondrous time. She was so generous and kind to me. She was living with Alexander Gudnov, this Russian ballet star at the time. And so I was there. I was like their houseboy. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it was such a wonderful one. I should have put show business right then because it was just this really wonderful, innocent time. And they, these grown-ups and, and stars were so kind to me in this way that was, you know, it was a, that was a beautiful memory. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what are the odds that we would have uh, Jacqueline know, Bissett and, and Andrew McCarthy on back-to-back days? Crazy. Well, also the craziness, which I read about when you auditioned for this, you know, you really were like an undrafted athlete because I read that they put you on tape, which was something that they didn't actually do back then. And they didn't want to look at the tape or something. It was was kind of a weird thing. Yeah, I had just been kicked out of college. I was at NYU. I'd been in NYU for two years. I was just kicked out of college. And I had no idea how I was going to tell my parents that I was just kicked out of college. And then a friend of mine called me up and said, there's an ad in the newspaper. They're casting for a movie. An open call, anyone can go, and they're looking for someone 18, vulnerable, and sensitive. And I was like, dude. (laughs) (laughs) And so I went up to the Antonio Hotel here in New York when I sat in a hallway with 500 other 18, vulnerable, and sensitive kids and went in and met a casting director for 30 seconds. And he said, come to my office tomorrow. So they're like, me? You know, anyway, so I went and I read a scene and then another audition, another audition. And then they wanted to put me on a thing called videotape, which was brand new in those days. And I mean, it was in this white room with this giant video camera and all these lights, these foot, because back then, you know, it was just this, it was a terrifying, intimidating experience. And I just froze and just like, um, did terrible. And I figured, okay, that's the end of that. My short lived movie aspirations are done. And a month later, they called me back up because it turns out they took the, the tape back out to Hollywood to show the producers and they plugged it in and they were looking at tapes. But it was, it was like, as you said, videotapes were so brand new at this point. This is 82. And they didn't know how to fast forward the tape. And so they had to, like when my tape came up, the director said, Oh yeah, skip this guy. He's no good. And they couldn't figure out how to skip me to fast forward it. <laughs> they just had to see it through. And the producer's like, no, this kid's weird. I like him. And anyway, so they brought me back in again, and then I was in the movies. Ah, oh, that's awesome. Well, listen, this is uh, this has been great. The book is great. Uh, we both loved it. Walking with Sam, a father, a son, and 500 miles across Spain. Andrew, thanks a lot for doing this, man. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. It's fun. There you have it, Andrew McCarthy. And Sue, what? so the Camino... Obviously, a spiritual experience. Uh, I'm going to throw you something really hard uh, for late in the show. What What is your greatest spiritual experience? Hmm. My greatest spiritual experience. Did you have the equivalent of the Camino somewhere in your life? Not necessarily walking a long time, but a place you were, anything like that. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Go, go I, I, ahead. yeah. I would say um, I went to Bali. Yeah. Um, many, many years ago and spent three weeks there and really lived in this one section for like 10 days. Mm. And we went to, you know, we went to Ubud and stayed with a, um, he was kind of a, he was, he was an ex model from Texas who moved <laughs> into this artist village and he was making um 
I, 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 I'm trying to think what you would call him. He was a healer, basically. Right, right. And we spent a day with him, and then we we saw him on our way back because I had gotten very sick. I drank and ate food I shouldn't have eaten, and I got very sick. And and then we came back, and we saw him, and he actually healed me. He healed you of what? I had like my I had some I had like I must have had food poisoning, and I was in bed in in, in Bali. I was in bed in our wow. hotel room for like a day and a half, and I had a high fever. And uh, on our way back, we had to go back through Ubud and we knew who he was and we knew where to find him because he had taken us to his house and we found him and he gave me this potion and he healed me. Um, But it was one of the most beautiful places I had ever been. Yeah. And it was an incredible, incredible experience. Yeah, For me, it was Thailand. Uh, which is just a beautiful, beautiful country, wonderful people. Um, and we got to go to this place. As you know, like I've got a tattoo of an elephant on my, uh, on my chest. I've got elephants all around the house. We got to go to this elephant reserve in Chiang Mai in Thailand. And it was just amazing. We got to feed the elephants. Uh, you got to go out and, in, into the river and splash the elephants so you could wash them off and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it was amazing. Elephants are just beautiful, amazing creatures. And to be with them, I thought was really, really cool. Almost human. They're almost human. Well, they apparently have really good memories. Very so they good probably, memories. They probably still remember you. Still talking about me. Those <laughs> elephants still talking about me in Chiang Mai. Um, all right, there you have it. There's your Culture Pop Podcast. Thank you very much to Andrew McCarthy. That was a great conversation. Uh, don't forget, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel. Just go to uh, YouTube and search Culture Pop Podcast, and we will pop right up. And we appreciate uh, if you subscribe and watch the show and leave a comment. Also, uh, you can still listen to the show as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or you can find all that stuff at stevemason.com. Sue, thank you very much. Great seeing you. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast.